Isaiah 58, verse 1 through 14. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is it not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go, shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your mist, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be watered, be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take 
delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken the word of the Lord. Well, we just began a brand new series called Public Faith. There's a narrative in our culture that says, if you have faith in God, if that works for you, then that's great, but you should keep that faith private. That narrative has a lot of power in our culture, and many Christians believe it. So, for instance, there was a survey a couple of years ago, and um, they asked practicing Christians whether or not they agreed with a series of certain statements. And one of the statements was this, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. How did people respond to that? Well, uh, 47% of millennial Christians uh, agreed at least somewhat with that statement, and almost 30% of Generation X Christians said the same thing. It's wrong to share your faith with others. Now, here's the irony about that. There are all kinds of things we have no problem telling other people what to believe in our culture, (laughs) especially justice, right? I mean, uh, not only do we not believe that's wrong, but we believe that we're morally compelled to tell other people what to believe about justice. So there's this real dichotomy in our lives. Faith is private, justice is public. But here's the question. What if that's a false dichotomy? In other words, what if living lives of justice not only allows you to bring faith into it, what if real justice requires it? This summer, we're looking at the question, what does it mean to be a public Christian? but to do so in a way that honors and respects other people, other cultures, other religions, and also to do so in a way that works for the common good of the whole world. So this summer, we're looking at two big things, justice and evangelism. And I don't think that we could pick two things that are more controversial in our culture. But both of these things are what the Bible says it means to be public followers of Jesus. So we're going to spend four weeks looking at justice, we're going to spend four weeks looking at evangelism, and then we're going to wrap it up by bringing it all together. This week, we begin looking at what the Bible says about justice. And if you've even been half conscious for the last five to ten years or so, you know that this is an incredibly controversial topic. So let's just dive right in, shall we? What does the Bible say about justice? We're going to look at this very famous passage that Joel just read and learn three things to begin with. We're going to see the importance of justice, the nature of justice, and lastly, the power for justice. The importance, the nature, and the power of justice. Okay, first, the importance of justice. Now, in this passage, God is talking to the people of Israel. And notice how he describes them. He says, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. So, God is saying, first of all, that these people are very committed in their religious practice. It's, they seek me daily. You know, these folks are not just Christmas and Easter. It's every day. But not only that, notice God says, they delight to know my ways. That word delight is a strong word. That means these people are not just committed, they're passionate. These are people who are deeply engaged in their faith, which makes what God says to them all the more astonishing. 
Here's what God says. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. God is saying, yeah, you're very religious, but you're sinning. And the people of Israel are like, wait, what? Because they say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, which is another word for fasting, and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, the the people of Israel are saying, wait a minute, God, we're doing all of this stuff. We're fasting, we're praying, we're offering sacrifices. There is no one more committed to their faith than we are. So how could you say that we're sinning? Well, God tells them in verse 6, he says, is not this the fast that I choose? Now, fasting is a way of talking about worship. God is saying there's a problem with their worship. Now, what does God say real worship is? Well, here's what he says. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the poor wanderer into your house. That's what God says real worship is. In other words, God is telling ultra-religious people. He's saying, "You, you say that you know me and that you love me, but you don't. Not really. If you're not pouring yourselves out for the poor, the hungry, the oppressed, and the afflicted, then you don't have as close a relationship with me as you think you do. Now, let me ask you a question. Does this unnerve you? Every time I read it, it unnerves me. Because God is saying that part of passionate worship is a passionate care and concern for the poor and the oppressed. And that if we're not concerned in caring for the poor and the oppressed, then then we don't have as close a relationship with God as we think we do. Now, why would God say this? Well, here's why. And it's the thing I really want us to grab hold of this morning. God identifies with the poor and the oppressed. He identifies with them. In fact, he's so closely identified with the poor and the oppressed that you can't get near to God without getting near to them. That's what God is saying here. He he identifies with them. And it's not just here in Isaiah 58, by the way. This idea appears everywhere in the Bible. So, for instance, you know how identity is a really big deal in our culture, right? I mean, we're obsessed with identity, and especially with presenting our identity to the world around us. And we have all kinds of ways that we do that, whether it's our hairstyle or our hair color or our eyeglasses or our clothes or our shoes or the social causes we champion, or going even deeper, it might be your gender identity, ethnic identity, sexual identity, political identity. We have all these things, and we look at them and we say, well, this is who I am. And then we assemble these things into our identity package, and then we present all of that to the world on social media, and we say, this is me. So here's the question. How does God identify himself in the Bible and then portray himself to the world? Well, in many ways, God is holy, God is loving, God is compassionate, but one of the main ways throughout the Bible that God portrays himself to the world is that this is a God who identifies with the poor and the oppressed. So, for instance, in Psalm 68, it says that God is father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. This is a God who's so identified with the poor that whatever you do to them, you're basically doing it to God. So, for instance, I mean, it goes many places. Proverbs 14, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Proverbs 19, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, 
The idea is that God is so identified with the poor that whatever you do to them, you're doing to him. And probably the most famous example of this in the whole Bible is Matthew chapter 25. Jesus himself says, hey, whenever you care for the poor or feed the hungry or clothe the naked, I am so closely identified with them that whatever you're doing to them, you're doing to me. Which, if you think about it, you realize Jesus is saying, I am the God of Hebrew Scriptures. I am the God of Moses, the God of Isaiah. It's an amazing passage. In fact, it's so amazing. We're going to look at that passage in depth in a couple of weeks. But do you see how radical this is? This is a God who doesn't identify with the rich or the elite or the powerful. In a patriarchal society, this God identifies with the widow. In a, in a tribal society, this is a God who identifies with the ethnic outsider. In a society that favors the rich, this is a God who identifies with the poor. In every category, this is a God who identifies with people who are at the bottom of the social ladder. Friends, here's the point. God is so identified with the poor and the oppressed that he's saying you can't know him and love him and serve him if you're not identifying with and caring for the poor and the oppressed yourself. He's saying that your relationship with the poor is a reflection of your relationship with God. Or we could say it like this. Um, Our vision statement as a church is to see a city made new by the gospel spiritually, socially, and culturally. And we're intentional about this language because of passages like this. In other words, God is saying there's no such thing as real social renewal without real spiritual renewal. They always go together. In our culture, we, we pull those things apart. But in this passage and in many others throughout the Bible, God is saying, spiritual renewal and social renewal always go together. You can never pull them apart, and that leads to our next point. We've just seen the importance of justice, but next, God shows us the nature of justice. Because um, here's the thing. Um, There are many various components and aspects of what the Bible says about justice, so we can't look at all of them this morning. Um, We're going to look at some of them in great detail as we go on throughout this series, but this morning I want to just highlight two big categories or aspects of what the Bible says about justice. And the first is equality. So if you look at verse 7, notice God says to share your bread with the hungry and bring the poor wanderer into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Now that phrase, the poor wanderer, is a, a phrase that is referring to ethnic and racial outsiders. And yet, notice at the very end, God says not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Now think about this. This is a tribal society. Family is everything. And yet here's God, and he's saying that, that you see this racial ethnic outsider? I want you to treat them the same way you would treat your own family. Because in God's eyes, God's justice sees every single human being as equal. There's no distinction, no racial distinction, no economic or social distinction. In fact, this is radical in the ancient world, but it's hard for us in our modern society to comprehend just how countercultural this was in the ancient world. Because the ancient world had a lot to say about justice. There were all kinds of legal codes in the ancient world with all kinds of laws about how to apply justice in the world. But the thing about all the other codes was they had different laws for different people. 
So, for instance, one of the most famous ancient legal codes in the world, ancient world, was something called the Code of Hammurabi. There's, uh, it was inscribed on a stone column, and this is a picture of it. You can actually see it if you go to Paris. It's in the Louvre. But this legal code, one of the most famous legal codes in the ancient world, said, look, if you're a, uh, uh, a poor man and you steal from a rich man, the sentence is death. But if you're a rich person and, and you murder a poor person, all you have to do is pay a fine. Totally unequal laws. Contrast that with the Bible, which is full of laws, and it's the same law for everyone, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're an ethnic insider or an ethnic outsider. The, the same law for everyone, everyone's equal because every human being in the Bible is created in the image of God, and therefore every human being is equal in the eyes of God and deserves equal treatment. So that's the first aspect of biblical justice is equality, but that leads to the second aspect we see, which is advocacy. And specifically what this means is a special concern for the most vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed groups of society. And the Bible talks about them constantly. People like the poor, the, um, the orphan, the widow, the alien, which today would be more like the immigrant or the refugee. The Bible talks about these groups constantly. In fact, there's a philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff. He calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. That's a great phrase, the quartet of the vulnerable in the Bible, because they talk about these groups constantly, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the alien, God loves everybody, but he has a special concern for these groups. Why? Because yes, everybody's equal in God's eyes. And yes, God's ideal is that we would treat each other equally, but the reality in our world is that we don't. There is injustice. There is oppression. And not just between individuals, but systemic injustice, systemic oppression, so that's why God says in verse 6 that we are to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Now notice, God does not just say that we are to undo the straps of the yoke, but to break every yoke. Now, if you don't know what a yoke is, in, um, in farming, a yoke is a heavy piece of lumber that's laid across the necks of oxen as they labor in the fields. They're literally pulling a cart or pulling a threshing sledge. It's, it's, it's a heavy piece of lumber that's laid across their, their necks. In other words, it's a structural thing. God is, it, it's structural injustice, structural oppression. God is saying not just to undo the straps of the yoke, but to break every yoke. Friends, listen, I know that this is controversial in our society. I know that this upsets people. But God is talking about the dismantling and the eradication of unjust social structures, especially structures that, that target the most vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed groups in our society. So to put this in modern terms, God is saying, yes, of course all lives matter. But black and brown lives matter especially. LGBTQ lives matter, especially. Unborn lives matter, especially because they are the most vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed groups in our society. That's what God is saying here. And listen, like I say, I know this makes people upset, but when you think about this, you realize, you know, in our modern world, 
We think that our modern concern for human rights and justice and equality and all of that stuff, it's a new thing. It's a modern thing. It's a progressive thing. It's, it's new. We've arrived. We modern progressive people and all of this focus on equality and special advocacy is new. It's not. It comes from the Bible. In fact, it wouldn't even exist in our society if it weren't for the Bible. We don't get it from the Code of Hammurabi. We don't get it from Greco-Roman society. It comes from the Bible. So, for instance, um, I've mentioned Tom Holland before, not the Spider-Man actor. Tom Holland is a very highly respected British historian. And by the way, he's not a Christian. Okay? He's not promoting a Christian agenda. But he wrote a very important book last year called Dominion. It's basically a history of how Christianity has shaped the moral imagination of the whole world for the last 2,000 years. Towards the end of the book, he goes through a whole list of many modern movements of social justice for oppressed, marginalized groups in society. He talks about the civil rights movement, Me Too movement, the LGBTQ movement. He talks about the anti-abortion movement. And he says all of these groups have a special concern for the groups in our society that are the most oppressed, the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. Now understand, he's talking as a historian. He doesn't have a Christian agenda, but he's saying all of these groups owe their very existence and their very moral um, foundation to the Bible. And in fact, the, the moral ideals that animate these groups wouldn't even exist in our society if it weren't, if it didn't come from the Bible. And, and, and it's so foundational to us that we don't even know it. It's like second nature to us. We're constantly, we're not even aware of it, of just how deeply we've been shaped by the moral imagination of Christianity. So here's how he puts it at one place in the book. He says, the trace elements of Christianity continued to infuse people's morals and presumptions so utterly that many failed even to detect their presence. Like dust particles, so fine as to be invisible to the naked eye, they were breathed in equally by everyone, believers, atheists, and those who never paused so much as to think about religion, had it been otherwise, then no one would ever have got woke. He's saying our modern emphasis on equality and advocacy for the poor and the oppressed comes from the Bible, and it wouldn't even exist in our society if it weren't for the Bible. Now, here's the question. What does it look like to do this? to practice this kind of concern for equality and, and, and advocacy for the poor and the oppressed. What does it look like to bring all of that together? In France, there's a little village called Le Chambon. And during World War II, they, were, uh, they had a pastor there named André Trochma who led the whole village to shelter Jews who were being taken prisoner and massacred in concentration camps. So what they would do is they would bring Jewish people into their village, into their schools, into their lives, into their homes, into the daily rhythms of their community. But eventually what happened was the authorities got wind of what was going on. So one day they sent an official representative to confront Andre Trochma and demand that he produce a list of Jews who were living in the village. It was a moment of truth for the whole village. Because everything they had been doing in secret up until that point, all of a sudden it was becoming known publicly. And they had a decision to make. Are they going to turn over the Jews and save themselves, or will they stand with the oppressed and suffer the consequences? The official came and he demanded 
that Andre Trochma give him this list of Jews, but, but Andre Trochma simply said, I don't know anything about Jews. All I know is human beings. They refused to capitulate to Nazi power. Now, as a result, some of them were arrested. Some of them even lost their lives themselves in concentration camps. But as a result of that village's courage and commitment to these biblical principles, they were all Christians, as a result, between three to 5,000 Jews were saved, men and women, many of them children, were saved as a result of their commitment to justice. Friends, biblical justice means equality, it means special concern for the, for the poor, the most vulnerable and marginalized groups in our society. It means breaking the yoke. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the importance of justice. And we've just seen the nature of justice. But lastly, we need to see the power for justice. Because here's the big question. You know, if you're spiritually curious, maybe you're exploring faith, or maybe you grew up in church, but, but you're getting skeptical, Maybe you've rejected Christianity, but if that's you, did you know that this was at the heart of Christianity when you rejected it? And if you are a Christian, do you realize that this is at the heart of the gospel? And for all of us, the big question is, how are we actually going to live lives like this? Because I think it's safe to say we all want to live lives like this. I think we all feel the force of this, but the problem is our typical motivations for living lives like this can never really sustain us, at least not in a healthy way. For instance, I'm, you know, anytime we preach on this topic, there's always a number of people, it's just natural, we're going to feel guilty. Guilt can be a very powerful motivation to change the way you live, at least for a little bit of time, but it can never sustain you and certainly not in a healthy way. Another powerful motivation in our lives is pride. It feels good to be able to say, I'm better than those people. I am more virtuous than those people. I'm more woke than they are. And here's the thing, doing good for others really does make you feel good about yourself. But again, is that a healthy way? Is that a healthy motivation? I was watching recently an interview. David Letterman was interviewing George Clooney. And if you know about George Clooney, you may be aware that he is at least as famous for his humanitarian philanthropic activity as he is for his acting. I mean, he's a huge humanitarian, very well known. And so David Letterman was asking about this, and they were talking about, hey, doing good for people and, and even the reasons that they do it. And David Letterman said, you know, uh, I like to help people for a very selfish reason. It makes me feel good about myself. And George Clooney shot right back. He said, I think that's probably why most people do it. That or they're absolving some guilt that they have. And I will tell you, I was amazed at how honest they were about this. But it's a very powerful narrative in our culture. Do good. Why? Because it'll make you feel good about yourself. You realize that is a selfish motivation for being unselfish. It can never really sustain us, not in a healthy way. So, there's guilt, neither pride. None of those things can motivate us really in a healthy way. Uh, another very powerful motivation in our culture nowadays is anger um, and, or outrage. You know, we live in a culture of outrage, right? But all you have to do is look at the history of revolutions, like the, the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror, to see that, oppressive, that anger and outrage has a tendency to replace one oppressive system with another equally oppressive system, another system that's just as ebrious and obsessed with power. So if neither guilt nor pride nor outrage can really sustain us in living lives of justice, what can? 
The answer is delight. Some of you are thinking, what? (laughs) It's a very specific kind of delight. Let me show you. You may remember back at the beginning of the passage, remember what's happening. The, The people of Israel, they're worshiping God, but they're also oppressing their workers. And so God calls them to account on this, but, but we find out later in the passage that all of this was happening on the Sabbath day. What's the Sabbath? In the beginning of the Bible, when God creates the world, it says that on the seventh day, He rested from all the work that He had done. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest, of celebration, and especially a day of delight in everything that God has done. You remember back at the beginning, we saw that God said, oh, these people, they delight to know my ways. That, that word delight is a strong word. It's an important word. But God is saying their delight is a fake delight. It's not real. It's false. That They think that their religious performance is a way of manipulating God into doing things for them. It's not real delight. It's fake delight. I mean, think about it. It's the Sabbath, but God never said to fast on the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't supposed to be a day of fasting, but a day of feasting. God never told them to fast on the Sabbath, and yet here they are. There's no delight in their lives, no real delight. Their lives are full of burden. They're bearing a yoke, but it's the yoke of sin. This idea that if I work hard enough, if I perform hard enough, then God has to bless me and give me a good life. So what does God do about all of this? They're, They're distorting the Sabbath. What does God do? He doesn't get rid of the Sabbath. He he says you have to get deeper into the real heart of the Sabbath. And here's how. Verses 13 and 14, God says, if you call the Sabbath a delight, then you shall take delight in the Lord. Now, what does this mean? What does God mean when he talks about this? You know, um, both religion and secularism operate according to this basic principle that says if you work hard, if you perform well, if you hustle really hard, then you will have a good life. There's no delight in that. It's the opposite of rest. It's exhaustion because it's all about what you must do. But the gospel is all about what God has already done for you. That's the true heart of the Sabbath. It's all about resting and delighting in what God has already done. Friends, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Sabbath because Jesus Christ is our ultimate rest and He is our ultimate delight. When Jesus Christ came to earth... His whole life was one long tale of injustice. The God of the universe came to earth and he was abused as a common peasant. The eternal son of God was rejected as an illegitimate child. Jesus was arrested unjustly. He was beaten unjustly. He was tried unjustly at an unjust time of night. He was condemned unjustly. He was whipped unjustly. And finally, he was crucified unjustly on the cross because when Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing the yoke of all God's justice on our injustice. But instead of simply being wearied or burdened by this yoke, it crushed him to the ground. Do you realize what Jesus was doing for us? He was identifying with us in our poverty, our poverty, our spiritual poverty, our poverty of virtue, our poverty of righteousness, our poverty of justice. Friends, don't you know that whatever your economic status might be, we're all spiritually poor and we need someone to come and identify with us and to rescue us from the injustice in our lives. What happens in your life when you see that actually happening, when someone comes and identifies with you like that? 
1961, there was a, a group of men and women, both black and white, who got on buses in the Deep South to protest the Jim Crow segregation laws. They were known as the Freedom Riders. And the deeper they got into the South, the further South they went, the more intense the violence and the persecution was that met them. Until finally, they got to Montgomery, Alabama, and a a mob attacked them with baseball bats and iron pipes. Many of them ended up in the hospital. I think, in fact, one of them was John Lewis, the famous senator who just passed away. But the night after that mob attacked the Freedom Riders, 1,500 people, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., gathered together in a church in Montgomery to honor the Freedom Riders, but also to figure out, hey, what's the next step here? But while they were gathered in the church, another mob of over 3,000 angry white people gathered outside of the church and started attacking them. There was only a handful of of marshals outside of the church trying to protect everybody from the firebombs that were being launched at them. They were in genuine fear for their lives until finally, in the middle of the night, Dr. King was able to get on the phone with Attorney General Bobby Kennedy. The the Kennedy administration, the federal government, as a result, sent in National Guard troops to protect the church and to save all the people who were inside of it. And one of the Freedom Riders who was there said later in an interview that when that happened, he said, people rejoiced because for the first time, the federal government had spoken from Washington. People knew that for the first time, the Kennedy administration had identified with our side. They were able to rejoice and delight because a power had identified with them and saved them. Friends, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, don't you know that a power infinitely greater than any federal government, any federal governmental power has identified with you? And the more you see Jesus doing that for you on the cross, the more He becomes your delight. And the more He becomes your delight, the more you will be able to identify with and to care for the poor and the oppressed, not out of guilt, not out of pride, not out of outrage, but because you've seen that the God of the universe has already done all of this for you. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we praise you this morning, the God who identifies with the lowly and the despised and the weak and the poor and the needy, the God who identifies with people who know that they are broken and lost, and especially, Father, with people who are at the bottom of the social ladder, people who have been oppressed, people who have been marginalized, people who have been victimized. Father, we praise you this morning that you are such a God and that there is no God besides you. There is no God like Yahweh, the God who's the father of the fatherless, the defender of widows, the God who sees the poor widow and and turns his attention to the weakest in society. Lord, we praise you this morning and we pray that you would help us to see you identifying with us in our poverty, Father, so that we might be able to identify with you by identifying with your people, with all of the poor and the oppressed in this world, that we might be changed and transformed through spiritual renewal into people who are also to go out and live in the world in ways of social renewal and cultural renewal. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.